All right. Well, I'll start a review of what we talked about last week. We're in a, I'm doing a three-week series on the topic of worship. Last week, the topic was why we worship. If you missed that, it's really foundational to what we're going to continue talking about, and it is posted on our church website, um, which is vineyardsa.org. And there's a link on the left that says online sermons. If you click on there, you can see the sermon and you can, uh, you can download it. It's an MP3 format, so you can put it on anything that you have that will hold that type of format to be able to listen to it. Um, and I'm just going to recap real fast kind of the main points of what we talked about as why we worship. Uh, first of all, we exist to worship and we were created to worship. We read several scriptures that shows how God created us for the purpose of giving him glory and praise. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. They were just really clear. We are created to worship. Uh, thirdly, things that we are created to do, we are compelled to do. We talked about various bodily functions and needs that we have. Because we're created for them, we will do them. Uh, we will worship something. So we are compelled to worship, whether or not who or what it is that we're worshiping. Also, worship is a verb. It requires action, it is participatory in nature, and it engages our senses, hopefully all of them. Worship is also our destiny. It is the primary activity of heaven. When we get there and you read Revelation, there's a lot of crazy stuff, but what's occurring in heaven in the throne room of God is worship. And we talked about these, how he's surrounded big throne and he's surrounded by the 24 elders and they were all falling down and worshiping one melody and then there's this other uh, creatures all gathered around them singing a different melody and they fall down and worship and then all of that is a sea of humanity and every creature and human and anything in existence that can proclaim praise was there doing it so that's the atmosphere of heaven so that is our destiny um, whenever we're no longer in this life Worship is also a continual way of life. It's something, a way we should be living um, instead of um, just doing on Sunday morning. Uh, and to experience effective corporate worship, which is where we gather here, we need to each bring the fruit of our own private worship. And we talked about having our hearts ready and what are we bringing to this. And if, if we're worshiping during the week... We're going to show up here on Sunday with a heart that's totally ready and passionate and excited. And if we're missing out on that all week, you're going to show up here dry and it's going to be hard for you to connect. So a lot of your experience of worship in a corporate setting is going to be the fruit of what you have been putting into it in your own life. And then finally, the Lord is desperate for our worship. Um, we read a bunch of scriptures where you could just hear this pain and agony of the Lord saying, I've created you to worship me, and you're not, you're just missing it. Um, and he's really desperate for that. Um, I also wanted to just recap really fast, because this is part of the core of the importance here, uh, three suggestions that I gave for increasing your private worship, because I think that was a big, um, a big point, I guess, that I wanted to make, is that there's more that needs that uh, is required of us to experience true worship is um, growing our own private worship. Ralph Mahoney, who is the founder of World Missionary Assistance Plan, said, Whenever his people gather and worship him, God promises he will make his presence known in their midst. On the other hand, where God's people consistently, consistently neglect true spiritual worship, his manifest presence is rarely experienced. And then the three suggestions that I gave for growing in private worship were to make yourself increasingly present to God. Just in moments of your day when, you know, maybe when you're impatient, you're stuck in traffic or you're waiting for an appointment and something isn't going your way and you're having to just pause and wait. Just take that moment where you're waiting and you're pausing and make yourself aware of the presence of God and just say, Lord, I love you. Thank you that you exist, and that I can take this moment to be with you. Um, and the second one was to set aside time regularly for private worship. Um, and then the third one was to offer yourself completely to God, ridding yourself of sin. And 
I meant to tell you all this story last week, and it's a good story, so I'm going to tell you this week. Uh, last week, at some point during the week, I was outside getting the mail or something, and I noticed that in all of these bushes and landscaping that we have in the front yard, there were these little weeds coming in the cracks, and we had a circle of ferns around a fountain. They were all in pots, and there was even weeds in the pots growing among the ferns. And I don't know if you know anything about ferns, but they have really sharp thorns. My husband had to pull two of them out of my hands later because I was trying to get those dang weeds out. But I ended up, it was early in the morning on Saturday, I think, and it was, the sun wasn't out yet, and I just ended up walking around pulling these weeds. And the herbs and the roses are dying, and these weeds are like, ah, you know, alive. And I'm like, stop, you know, like, I just did this a couple of months ago. My mom and I spent like four hours out here pulling weeds, and then Joseph did it. And I'm sitting here going, how come it is that if you ignore this garden, these weeds just flourish and the plants die. Like, what is that? You know, it's not too much work for me. This is why I'm not a gardener. And it just occurred to me that that is what our character is like. And that is what our spiritual development is like. The things that are good and powerful and are going to require cultivation. And if we don't do anything, what's going to happen is weeds. And so if you walk through your life and you're not spending time with God, you're not spending time in intimacy, you're not working actively on your character and your growth and your integrity, what's going to happen by default is flesh and sin. By default is not character growth. By default is not spiritual growth and becoming the type of person that you want to be or that God has called you to be. So we have to cultivate that. And in order to do that, we have to set aside time for um, for private worship, and we have to get out the yuck in our lives and allow God to take that over. Um, we have to cultivate it. And, and sometimes I think as Christians, we just sit here and go, oh, it's so much work, you know, do devotions and do this and do that, you know, I have all these things I have to do. And it's because we're cultivating something, and we don't want, by default, our lives to just be a wreck and thorns. <clears throat> Um, all right, we also talked a little bit um, about worship last week, about worship occurring in our spirit. This is John 4:24. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. I think that one of the problems we have in our expectations of what worship should be or what we should be worshiping like is we think that this verse says his worshipers must worship with their emotions. And it doesn't say that. It says with your spirit. So that means that your emotions don't necessarily have to be in line in order for your spirit to be in line. But we have another problem. We're not in heaven yet in that awesome, wonderful, incredible 24-ever-eternity worship. We're still here. And so we are still a body, a physical body, and a spirit. We're not just spirit. And so we're trying to connect with this spirit part of us while still being in this body part of us. And because of that, we have all kinds of obstacles to worship. And those are some of the things we're going to talk about today is obstacles to worship um, and see if we can possibly overcome some of those. A few obstacles that I thought of were we don't understand God. Um, if we really understood who he was, how could we not worship? So maybe we don't understand him. Maybe we don't understand how to worship, the technical aspects of it. What does that require of us? Maybe we don't understand why worship really matters to God. Maybe we're ashamed of ourselves, and we have things in our past that aren't clean, or we feel like we're not clean, and we don't feel that our worship is worthy or that it matters to God. Certainly sin would be an obstacle if there was something really in your life that you were just not willing to give up. That's going to harden your heart. It's going to callous your heart. Uh, if you have shame, maybe something was done to you that was out of your control. Uh, self-consciousness. Maybe the people around you are worshiping, and so you have this expectation that you should just look like it. Or maybe the people around you aren't worshiping, and so you're afraid you'll stick out if you do. There are certainly cultural perceptions. Every culture worships differently. Um, 
when we used to do mission trips to Mexico, it was, it was just totally awesome to be in these church services because it's, you know, 100 and something degrees. You're in a brick room, you know, the size of this seating area, but there's like 200 people in there, standing room only. There's no air conditioning. There might be a fan if you're lucky. And it's just like sweat, sweltering. And these people are just going crazy worshiping. The kids are running around with no underwear on, you know, in the middle of I mean, it's just, and it doesn't matter. Just all those distractions are irrelevant to them. Uh, they just love to worship. Um, distractions, though, certainly, uh, that could be an obstacle. Um, self-pity, maybe a small worldview. Uh, certainly suffering and tragedy, especially if you have not settled your theology on that issue. We're going to talk about that a bit today. And then back to our feelings. We don't feel like it. And maybe we're tired of trying to generate those emotions or trying to generate those feelings that we think are required of us in worship because we think God's worshipers must worship with their feelings, which is not what it says. So then we go, well, that feels fake. That feels forced. It feels like hype. It feels hypocritical. So... I don't want to be hypocritical, so I'll just sit in my seat and be the way that I am. And uh, this is one of my, you're going to get a couple of my soapboxes today, and this is one of them. Um, When I was in high school, I guess, and probably most of you at some point, middle school, high school, college, not sure exactly where it hits you, there was this spurt among you and your peers to be real, to be authentic. I know it was with my generation. I'm kind of guessing that it happened for every generation at some point in their growth that, you know, it's time to be real. It's time to be authentic. And the result of that sometimes is you get these people being real and saying and doing all kinds of things that are really real that are a little scary or mean or rude or inconsiderate because they're real. They don't feel like it. Why should they need to change their behavior for you? They're being authentic, you know. They don't want to put on a mask or a facade. And the problem here is what they're being real to, which is their feelings. And some of you have heard this before if you heard my sermon in January, but you should be real to more than your feelings. You should be real to your values. And when I talked about this, I used an illustration of this coworker that came in this, you know, crazy outfit. And uh, anyway, I wanted to say all kinds of things to him. But I didn't because I was true to my values, which was to care for that person. And I talked about how, you know, if you're driving and somebody cuts you off, seriously, I have been in a couple situations where all I wanted to do was just drive my car straight into that other person's car and smash their car. Because I was so mad at how rude they were being as a driver. Well, I can't do that. I might feel that way, but I'm going to be real to my values, not to my feelings. I don't want to pay for my car. I don't want to pay for their car. I don't want to be in an accident. Um, at work, you know, your coworkers could make you upset. Your boss could make you upset. And if you think you're being real and you just say whatever you want to your boss, you may not have your job for very long. You know, and we know that, right? So you're real to your values, which is I need this job, respect is important, and I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and do what I need to do. So we need to remember that our emotional state is not the determinant of how we worship because that's not what we are being authentic to. We're being authentic to what we believe and what we know about Christ and what his word says about worship. Some other obstacles, maybe worship seems too feminine or what goes along with it seems too feminine. Maybe you feel inadequate like God could never accept you. Maybe the drums are too loud. Maybe everything is too loud. You don't connect with certain songs. A word is spelled wrong in the PowerPoint. The singer is off pitch. The singer is missing an arm. The bass player player is cute. We like slow songs. We like fast songs. The audio tech just missed a solo and we make it about us. And it was never about us. Um, The Lord's Prayer, everybody should know this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. There are seven petitions in this prayer. The first three are on behalf of the cause of God, the glory of his name, 
the extension of his kingdom, and the prevalence of his will. The other four, properly placed after God and his cause, pertain to our needs. We need to remember this order. Absolutely, the obstacles that we're going to discuss are, are present. They're different for each one of us. But worship is not for us. God is worth whatever it takes to break through the obstacles that are going to be unique to you. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you that we can come in freedom in this country, in this place, in this room, and bring our hearts to you, bring our lives to you, bring our failures, our inadequacies, our fears, and that you're okay with that because we're here to say, Lord, I know where I'm at, and whether it's a good place or a bad place or kind of in between place, I don't want to stay here. I want to grow. I want to learn to be closer to you. I want to overcome the obstacles that are in my life that are preventing me from being, from being near you in the way that I know my heart really desires. Lord, make us receptive to what you have to say to us personally this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, the first obstacle we're going to talk about is who God is. And I, I wondered, well, maybe we fail to worship God because we don't really have a good picture of how ridiculously amazing he is. And if we could grasp him, not even all of him, just one thing or just a few things, maybe just a tiny aspect, I think we would be totally overcome with worship. So let's talk about a few things about who God is that we can see expressed in the earth. Some attributes of God that make him worthy of our worship. God is huge. He is enormous. He encompasses everything created and everything uncreated within himself. One of the things he has created that shows his bigness is the universe or the cosmos. Our universe consists of more than 100 billion galaxies. Each galaxy on average contains more than 100 billion stars, which accounts for more than 10 billion trillion stars. That's a one followed by 22 zeros. That's on the low end of their estimations. <laughs> the nearest star that's visible to our naked eyes is called Alpha Centauri. It is 4.5 light years away. That's 250,000 times the distance to the sun. So if you traveled at the speed of light, you would reach the moon, the moon in one and a half seconds. You would reach the sun in eight and a half minutes. And you would travel four and a half years at that speed to reach Alpha Centauri. God is small. He's able to be particular and detailed about incredible things like that. We can see his detail in the individual designs of every single snowflake. We know that, uh, from, that snowflakes are uniquely designed. Every winter, there are about one septillion snow crystals that drop from the sky. That's a one followed by 24 zeros or a trillion trillion. Every winter. <laughs> I thought that was cool, too. I, I could go on. There's a billion things in nature that are just mind-boggling. I don't understand how anybody thinks it could just happen. Um, <clears throat> God also creates vast dynamic contrast and seeming contradictions. These are some of the things that we get hung up on times as humans. He has the ability to create and control and know everything, yet he also has the ability to create a people with free will who hate him. We see this dynamic range in the temperatures that are possible on Earth. The coldest recorded temperature is in Vostok Station in Antarctica, negative 128 degrees Fahrenheit. At the same time, Earth is the only planet on which water can exist in liquid form on the surface. The temperature of Earth near the center is thought to be at least 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, how can you be 7,000 degrees in the center and have liquid water on the earth and clouds and rain and snow and have this other place that's a negative 128? I mean, all in this one planet. In our bodies, this is just a recent discovery in the last decade. They were trying to figure out, they know how we taste, they know how we hear and how we see, but they were trying to measure how do we feel temperature. 
in our bodies. And they found that we have four ion channels that are sensitive to heat and two that are sensitive to cold. So we're trying to figure out, well, how do we feel so much variety of temperature when there's only six channels that are sensitive? Then they discovered that subunits of the channel will come together with subunits of the other channels to make new functioning channels. And the result is, instead of four heat-sensitive channels, we have the potential of 256 heat-sensitive channels in our body. (laughs) The article I was reading didn't talk about how many that multiplied for the two cold-sensitive ones. So our normal body temperature is 98.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Your temperature also varies during the day. It'll be coldest uh, about 4 a.m., and it'll gradually increase over the course of the day. An emergency hypothermia, hyperthermia in your body is 104 degrees Fahrenheit. That's only 6 degrees hotter than your normal body temperature. Emergency hypothermia is at 94.6 degrees Fahrenheit. That's that's less than 4 degrees below normal. So in, in a scale that's 10 degrees bracketed is your existence. Your eyes, close them. There's no PowerPoint for this one. Every eye has 130 million rods for black and white vision. It has 7 million cones for color vision. Close your eyes. You're supposed to be listening. Those are connected to your brain by 300,000 nerve fibers. Your eye can receive 1.5 million messages simultaneously. To duplicate the vision of one eye mechanically, it would require 250,000 television transmitters and receivers. You can open your eyes. These facts are merely a drop in the bucket of incredible facts about our bodies, our world, and our universe. Doesn't that make you want to worship God? All right. I'm tackling some big things, and I'm hoping that there will be, that I won't mess up theologically, so my dad will have to correct me if I do, but I think I've done work here. We can talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the, the moment on which the whole theology of Christianity resides, is, is Jesus' death and resurrection historically reliable? These are the two most important events in the history of the world. And they're also the two central facts on which our faith is founded. We're going to talk about at least four. We're going to talk about four amazing facts about the cross. There's lots more, but we're just going to talk about four of them today. One of them is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we know that there is life after death. If this life were everything, Jesus would never have died because he was God. He didn't have to die. He had divine power. He could have easily escaped from the hands of his enemies. He wouldn't have handed himself over to them and willingly be crucified. The reality of life after death and of the immediate entry of the soul at death into the eternal state is also revealed in the words of Jesus to the thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. These words of Jesus have validity because Jesus came back from the dead after three days. This was the clearest proof that what Jesus had said about death and life and all the other things he said were literally true. There is a vast amount of historical reliability on the resurrection, a lot more than what I'm going to go into today. Um, there is one, uh, one that I'm going to discuss. Dr. Simon Greenleaf lived from 1783 to 1853. He was a royal professor of law at Harvard University, and he was a sworn atheist. He was vehemently anti-God, anti-scripture. And he actually wrote the famous legal volume entitled A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. Many people to this day consider that to be the greatest legal volume in existence. And the point of that book that he wrote was, as you can see, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. He was talking about how you use evidence and witnesses to determine what, what happened. What can we call truth based on the evidence and based on the testimony of the witnesses? So at some point, one of his friends challenged him to use all that legal stuff that he was so brilliant at to prove by the testimony of the witnesses and by the evidence that Jesus did not exist and had not died or resurrected. 
So he specifically focused on the resurrection because he felt like if you could prove the resurrection, then you could prove everything else. And if you couldn't prove the resurrection, then everything else didn't really matter anyway because Jesus was a liar. So he focused on that. And uh, he determined once and for all to expose the myth of the resurrection. Yet after thoroughly examining the evidence for the resurrection, he came to the exact opposite conclusion. He wrote a book entitled An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists, which are the four Gospels, by the rules of evidence administered in the courts of justice. In this book, he stated, it was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. So by the evidence of the lives of those men who we have documented, there was no way that in a court of law you could have held up their testimony, their lives, and what they did, and had them do that with a Jesus who never rose and who they didn't see in reality risen. So by the evidence of those witnesses and their testimony, we can see the validity of the resurrection. That's what he proves in his, I'm sure, lengthy and heady discourse. I haven't read it. Um, He concluded that according to the jurisdiction of legal evidence, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the best supported event in all history. And of course, I'm sorry. (laughs) Of course he commits his life to Christ after that. All right, number two point about the cross. God is holy, and I have it up there as God equals holy, because that is the word is. God is infinitely and absolutely holy, and he cannot tolerate sin. On the cross, he turned his face away from his sinless son, because he had taken our sin on himself, and he forsook him because God could not look on this sin. We all have a conscience. I think that's good enough for us to know that such a thing as holiness and sin exists. What triggers our conscience is going to be different depending on our upbringing. But the fact that you can have that twinge in your heart when you say the wrong thing to your spouse, to your kids, when you cheat at work, just a little bit, it shows that there is some standard of holiness your soul is telling you exists and you're not matching up right now. Scripture tells us that God is holy. God equals holy. Number three, God is love. God didn't just say he loved us. He showed it to us in the greatest way possible. There is no greater manifestation of love on this earth than a man laying down his life for another. You could say that the desire for love is the foundation for all great faith and all great sin. It would be absurd to argue that we don't desire something called love. If we desire it, there must be a means in which it was created, a means in which it can be met, and some standard for what love is and what love is not. God is that standard. There is no other way of salvation. So if we have a God who equals holy, and we have a God who equals love, there must have been some really important reason, in fact, no other way for our salvation, for him to allow his own son and part of himself to die and to suffer what he suffered. It would have been foolish for him to have permitted his son to go through the agony of the cross unnecessarily. Knowing that according to the jurisdiction of the legal system, the resurrection of Jesus Christ can be proven without a doubt. Knowing that our conscience tells us there is a standard of holiness. Knowing that our desire for love and intimacy tells us there is someone who can fulfill that desire. And knowing that a holy, loving God willfully allowed his only son to suffer death for our salvation the only way to salvation. Does knowing these things give you some surety on which to base your worship? And don't they make you want to worship that kind of God? All right, we're going to talk a bit about the reliability of Scripture. Um, I'm going into some of this because some of you are um, very logical, factual people. I fall in that category. You take like a left brain, right brain I'm kind of straddling on the middle, but I'm on the left brain side. And in order for me to make a decision that I'm going to base my life on, I've got to have some facts and some evidence and some logic. Um, Maybe that's... Anyway, and there's some of you out there that are like that, that are going to relate to me in that way. And there's some of you that you don't need any of that. All you need is somebody to say, look, it happened to me and it's amazing. You're like, yeah, I want that too. So... 
I'm trying I'm trying to hit both of these camps. All right. So we're still in the in the left left brain camp. Am I right? You're left. Um, here are a few. I put five or four books up here. I have read two of them. I've read the Five Minute Apologist and I've read Mere Christianity. The other two I've heard recommended really highly about people who were even more left brain than I was and needed even more facts and evidence. Uh, if you have any um, troubles in this area, I really suggest you pick one of these up. Um, in the Five Minute Apologist, that's by a man named Dr. Rick Cornish, we learn about the reliability of several well-known ancient documents. For three out of these four, you will have learned about in school. Aristotle. Raise your hand if you know who Aristotle is. All right, you're still awake. In the fourth century BC is when Aristotle lived. The earliest copies we have of his work are from A.D. 1100. That's 1,400 years after the original was written. We only have five copies. But you learn about him in school. The Greek historian Herodotus, he was alive in the 5th century B.C., but the earliest copies of his work are from A.D. 900. That's still 1,000 years after he wrote. We only have eight copies. When we talk about, when you learn about the Greek world in school, most of what they're teaching you is from um, Aristotle and Herodotus. And then this third one, Homer. The Iliad, which is one of Homer's most famous works, was written about 800 B.C. The earliest copy is from the 2nd century A.D. That's still a 1,000 years after the original. And we have 600 ancient copies. The New Testament... (laughs) I cried for a long time when I read this in the book, so bear with me. It was written in the first century A.D. We have 5,664 Greek manuscripts or partial manuscripts. If we include Latin and other ancient languages, there are 24,000 copies. Nearly complete Greek New Testaments exist from only 300 years after the original, and some fragments are dated to a mere generation after the original. No other ancient document comes close to the New Testament. By examining so many manuscripts, scholars can reconstruct the New Testament to its exact wording with 99.5% accuracy. The remaining differences are mostly spelling and no doctrine is affected. The New Testament is reliable and trustworthy. When we study it, we are learning what God intended. All right. We have established, uh, and then the, if, if the Old Testament, I didn't, um, I didn't do a lot of work on that, but in the New Testament, we have multiple quotations from Jesus to Paul. To Most of the books in the New Testament quote the Old Testament and refer to the Old Testament. And um, so if you can verify the New Testament, you can verify the existence of the Old Testament. And then there's the you know, Christian Bible, Catholic Bible. I'm not going to go into all of that. You can do more study on that if you want. But I, I just wanted you to see in hard numbers, how you can rely on the word of God and that it is accurate and that what you are reading should change your life because it's true. So we have discussed the reliability of the Bible and therefore the existence of God. We have described a God who is worthy of worship. Once we've solved those questions, one of the greatest remaining obstacles to worship and really to our Christian faith and theology is suffering. So now we're going to tackle that. (laughs) There's three books on this subject. I have read uh, two of them. The first one is Where is God When It Hurts by Philip Yancey. There is also a book called The Gift of Pain by Dr. Paul Brand and a book called The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. The book that's most fresh in our memory is Where is God When It Hurts by Yancey. Um, Yancey spent a significant portion of his life studying what Dr. Brand was doing, which is the second book. Dr. Brand ran a leper colony, and he began the leper colony back when they still thought that leprosy was contagious and that it was leprosy. I'm sorry, I don't know about that part. When they still thought that leprosy is what caused, like, your hands and your arms and your feet and everything to disintegrate, that it was the disease causing that. And it was Dr. Brand's work in the leper colony where he discovered that it was actually the absence of pain 
and therefore them putting, he had patients, he watched them put their hand in a, like a bonfire to pick out somebody's food that had dropped in there and handed it to him. And he had another time he couldn't get a key, um, the key in his door wouldn't turn. He was just pushing and pushing and pushing and couldn't get it. And one of his patients comes up, oh, I'll get that for you, doctor, and he you know, turns it. And it just turns right there. And he's still like, shoot, this is a little kid. And then he sees that the kid's flesh is cut open to the bone. And he couldn't feel it. So he then wrote this huge book on, um, <clears throat> there was another guy who was a salesman. And he was wearing those really, these really expensive, fancy shoes and they were causing destruction to his feet and they had a way where they could actually scan his feet and see hot spots where infection was starting under the skin and they would tell him look you've got to stop wearing these shoes they're destroying your feet and he's like no 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 I've got to look good for my job and these are the shoes that everybody has to wear and you know I'm not going to give up wearing these shoes but you're destroying your feet no 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 but he couldn't feel the pain so it didn't stop him from ruining his feet and he wore his feet down until he had no more feet left and all he had was nubs, and he had to get prosthetics because he couldn't feel the pain. So Dr. Brand decided that we had to give these people a way to know when they were damaging their bodies. And he wanted to create a device. He was going to start with the hands because they're a really important part of your body. And he made a device that would have an alarm system. So if you do something that was damaging to your body with your hands, it was like these gloves or something. These little alarms would go off, beep, 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 and you'd know, okay, I should stop there. I'm putting too much pressure on my body. Well, they would just ignore it because they wanted to do whatever they were about to do. So then he created something that had a little node in their armpit because I guess the armpit was one of the last places for them to lose sensitivity. So they usually still could, had, could feel pain in their armpit. And it would give them a little electric zap in their armpit when they would try to do that because they thought, okay, we've got to make pain. And they would shut the device off. So he discovered that if we don't have pain, we destroy our bodies. Now, when you are in cancer treatment or you have chronic joint pain or any other type of chronic pain, you're not thinking about how grateful you are that pain exists in your body. <laughs> and I'm not asking you to. Uh, I got... When we were putting up the signs, I got bit by about six fire ants on my right foot. I don't know why they all wanted my right foot and nobody on the left. But last night about 5 a.m. I woke up and I had to go get some ice and put the ice all over just so I could sleep. I wasn't grateful for the fact that those fire ant bites were hurting my foot. But I acknowledged the fact that if I didn't know they were hurting, I didn't know those bites were hurting. If I didn't know those ants had been biting me, I couldn't have brushed them off. And who knows how many times they could have bit my foot till my foot was completely swollen and infected if I hadn't been able to feel those little bites and go, you're dead. <laughs> In the book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis points out, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. C.S. Lewis was also a famous atheist before he was a famous Christian. And this was his primary argument against God. You're cruel. You're unjust. But then I considered how had I got this idea of just and unjust. A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust? And I want to point something out to you. There's two things we see in scripture that God created, two environments for us to live. The first one was Eden. Eden was perfect. It was flawless. There was no pain. There was no suffering. The other atmosphere the Lord has created for us to live is heaven. There is no fear. There is no suffering. There is no tears. And somewhere in between that, we created this mess we call earth. Because God chose to create this thing called free will. In his book, Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis argues... Try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you find that you have excluded life itself. Pain is not an afterthought. It is not God's great goof or the one thing we hold against an otherwise good and loving God. To remove the possibility of pain and suffering, you would have to remove the possibility of free will. The result is a universe of robots that God animates to love him. And who wants that kind of love? The conclusion of Philip Yancey's book is that we're asking the wrong question. When we're in a time of suffering or tragedy 
or pain, the question we always ask is why? And he talks about a lot of other things that are very compassionate and healing and tells all these stories of these people who suffered immensely and how they made it or didn't make it through their pain. And he discovered that what those people who had suffered incredible tragedy, you know, bodily paralysis and loss of family members and more, that instead of asking why the ones who made it, they asked, what now? For what future purpose? Where to now, God? How now? As the old little kid saying goes, how now, brown cow? What now, Lord? To what end, God, can you use this? Change me. Take me from here. Um, there's a scripture in Romans 8.28 that talks about this. It says, and I used a translation called Young's Literal Translation because they're trying to give you the exact wording of scripture, even if it's awkward. And some, in this case, it's a better reflection of what the scripture is saying. And we have known that to those loving God, all things do work together for good to those who are called according to purpose. Our problem with our usage of the scripture verse Uh, it works all things to the good of those who are called according to his purpose, is that we translate this to mean all things happen for a reason. That is not what it says. It does not say why all things happen for a reason. That's a why question. It says he works all things to good, which is a what now question. And then the second point that Yancey concludes with is that the other question we should be asking is where is the church when it hurts? Matthew 9:37 Then Jesus said to his disciples, "The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few." And the answer to that question is, we are the church. And in case you forgot, God experiences suffering too. We're not we don't have the corner on the market on that one. In John 11:35, when Jesus' friend Lazarus died, he wept. He was sad about death and suffering and tragedy on this earth. In Matthew 27:46, when Jesus was on the cross and God turned his face away, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God will always have to deal with those of us like me who have rejected him and hated him and spit in his face. So those are some big obstacles. And I just encourage you that whatever your obstacle is, if it's one of the ones that I've talked about, if it's a different one, um, see what you can do to dismantle that. If you're a left brain person and you need to go do some reading, go do that. If you're a right brain person and you need to talk to some people and get it out, get some emotional healing, some prayers, some counseling, do that. God is worth your worship, and you are worth being set free and living life in a way that is free. And that doesn't have barriers between you and God. And a couple other ones sometimes that people get hung up, I'm not going to go into, but uh, is hearing the voice of God and the frustration over that. There's an excellent book on that topic called Is That Really You, God? by Lauren Cunningham. Him and his wife founded uh, Youth with a Mission. And another one a lot of people get hung up on is conflict and hypocrisy within the body of Christ. And there's an excellent section in Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life where he talks about the church. And uh, it's just incredible on that topic. So anyway, um, and I've already mentioned a bunch of books on suffering and logic and apologetics. All right. Um. I'm going to continue talking about suffering a little bit, but in a different, a different way, because I think that when we're experiencing suffering, part of the struggle and the questions that we're answer, asking or, or suffering there can be answered by worship. And by that I mean worship can sustain us through suffering. If you read the Psalms, I would say maybe half of them are, oh my God, my life is falling apart and they're all killing me and it's so horrible and, you know, and nobody likes me anymore and, you know, there's enemies on every side. I mean, he's really fancy in his language. I'm, I'm dumbing it down. But, and then he ends with, but yet I will praise you. You are the God who holds me and strengthens me and is there for me, my fortress, my tower. You know, I can hide in the shadow of your wings. And I mean, 
There's like half the book like this. This, oh, I'm falling apart and yet I will praise you. And it's because worship is sustaining him through that suffering. Here's an example, Psalm 31. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish, my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction, my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the contempt of my neighbors. I am the dread of my friends. Those who see me on the street run away. I am forgotten by them as if I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. For I hear the slander of many. There's terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. For great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. Praise be to the Lord, for he showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. Be strong and take heart, all of you who hope in the Lord. You may have heard this story before, but the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, was written by a man named Horatio Spafford in 1873. Before we read the lyrics, which are there for you, I'd like to give you the background. In 1870, it's written in 1873, so we're going to go back two years, bink, bink, to 1871. Spafford is living in Chicago, in the Great Chicago Fire of October 1871, occurs. He had been a wealthy businessman, very successful, wife and children, four daughters. He was financially ruined. He lost everything in that fire. And then about a year and a half later, him and his wife say, I don't know about this. And they decide to take a trip across the Atlantic. And he says, look, I'll stay back home in Chicago. I'll try to clean up the remnants of our failed life here. And you go with the girls, uh, their four daughters, and I'll meet you there. Well, on that trip, their ship collided with another. Spafford's wife, Anna, survived. His daughters did not. And she sent him the now famous telegram, Saved Alone. Just a few weeks later, he was on his own ship crossing the Atlantic, and he passes over the spot near where his daughters died. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit inspired these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. And though Satan should buffet, the trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. He has shed his own blood for my soul. Lord, it is for you. For thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope. Blessed rest of my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Worship sustained him. When I was in college, um, the summer between my my third and fourth year I was in for five years so I'd kind of lost track of the sophomore junior senior thing Um, I decided that I was tired of being the good girl Um, I was tired of being looked at as the you know the pastor's daughter who turned out okay and always doing the right thing and you know like just for once I wanted to be free and to just choose to do something that I wanted to do instead of feeling like I was under all these guidelines or whatever. I don't know. Rebellion. And uh, I had never dated any bef- anybody before. My parents had 
not um, allowed me to. And then when I got to college, I decided I don't want to be distracted. I want to focus on my education. And sometime right before that summer, it hit me that, you know, I said I didn't want to date anybody, but then again, nobody's ever asked that I've had to turn down. So maybe I'm not lovable. Maybe nobody will ever love me. And so I set out to see if I could get somebody to ask me out. And that turned out to be a guy that I was working with at Fiesta, Texas, when I worked there that summer, who's not a Christian. He's a very sweet, kind guy. And uh, we spent the summer hanging out, and um, I kept my virginity, but I did lose some other things. And most of all, I lost my relationship and my stability with Christ. So when I went back to school that fall after I broke up with him, after he told me that he loved me and I broke his heart, I went back to college and I became very depressed and suicidal. And looking back, I think a lot of it was the result of the place that I had put my heart in from choosing willful sin. But I just felt confused and lonely and afraid that nobody would ever love me, that I'd be single for the rest of my life. And the idea of that didn't seem very pleasant. And I decided if that's how it was going to be, I'd rather be dead. I never attempted to take my own life because somewhere in the back of my head, I thought maybe if you committed suicide, you didn't go to heaven. And I've never read anything theologically about that, so don't take my word for it. But that was a fear that kept me from actually doing it, so I think God used it. And that depression lasted from the end of the summer to about the end of November. So it was a few months. And during that time, I felt so dark and full of despair. I could hardly lift my head up. I could hardly go to my classes. I didn't want to flunk out, which is the only thing that kept me going. And I certainly did not feel the presence of God. I I couldn't. There was no... the idea of cracking my Bible, of praying. And there were two things that I did that sustained me. And I, I don't know that I did it understanding the, that it was worship. I just did it because it made me survive. And one of them is I put on a song called uh, Grace. Is this slide? I can't think of the name of it. Grace was down. Can you put that one up? Is that next? This is a female artist who has a beautiful voice. And it's amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Amazing love now flowing down from hands and feet that were nailed to the tree. Grace flows down and covers me. And it covers me, and it covers me, and it covers me. And that song played every night, all night long while I was sleeping. And that was the only way that I could sleep without dreams that were tormenting. And the second thing that I did about once a week is I went into the hall where the they reserved for the music majors and they had little tiny closets with pianos in them and I would sit at the piano and play and ever since I played piano I could always feel the presence of the Holy Spirit when I played even if I was mad or angry or whatever and in those moments when I would sit and play and I'd play all these very dark unhappy sounds I wrote a really bunch of depressing songs during that time of my life you wouldn't want to hear them now Um, but if I ever get the urging to go pull them out I know that I need to go get some help (laughs) Um, and in that moment when I was playing, it was like this shaft of heaven's light would come down on me, and I could feel the presence of God. And it was this little window of time that was safe, and I didn't feel depressed, and I felt like there's life here. And the minute I walked out of that door, I would be just as depressed and overwhelmed and despairing as I was before. But I knew I could go back to that place, and there would be a little piece of hope. So those were two elements of worship that sustained me, even during a depression that was caused by some of my own poor choices. For some of you, this is what you really need because that's the type of season of life that you're in. And maybe it's not from sin or maybe it is, I don't know. Maybe it's just the circumstances of life adding up. And you need to learn how to allow worship to carry you through suffering. Maybe you don't need it now, but somebody that you know needs it. Or maybe at a time in your life, You're going to need it. There's people in this room that have lost multiple children. There's people in this room that have lost marriages. There's people in this room that have been financially devastated several times over. 
And they're still here today because God sustained them. And I'm guessing at some point it was worship that sustained them through suffering. If you ask them, they probably have a favorite song that helped remind them of God's presence during that time. A.W. Tozer, a powerful author on worship, said, Without worship, we go about miserable. (laughs) All right, I'm really going over. I still have a couple more things. Um, In preparation for this message, actually the one in January, I took a poll of my friends on Facebook, and I said... If you could go to one concert of one band in your lifetime, what band would it be? And they still don't have to be performing together. So you all probably have one. Some of the answers that I got were Nirvana, the original Alice in Chains with Lane Staley still on vocals, Pink Floyd, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Bob Marley combo, Journey with Steve Perry on vocals, Beatles at the Cavern in Liverpool pre-Ringo. Very detailed. The Beatles Anywhere, Five Iron Frenzy, uh, and someone commented, before your time, but good, Boston, U2 for sure, and then someone else said, Handel conducting the Hallelujah Chorus. And when you think about a concert, this is a picture of a Chris Tallman concert that Jamie and Patsy Boozer lovingly treated Benjamin and I to uh, last year, I think, which was powerful. Um... And there's all these elements of a concert production. There's the band and the music, and it's so loud. You probably have your fingers in your ears, and there's all these lights flashing around everywhere. And this big stage, there's thousands of people surrounding you. We're totally ecstatic to be there. And you always have this awesome, hyped-up, super incredible feeling and memory of that concert. You, especially if it's one where you just totally like that band, and so does everybody else that you're with. And I was thinking about that and saying, well, you know, what makes the difference there between that, what we're experiencing there, and what we're experiencing on Sundays? And I, I think the difference is, besides if you set aside the production elements, the difference is what we as audience members are bringing to that experience. And we're bringing anticipation, we're bringing delight, we're bringing experience with the repertoire. We're bringing energy, and we incur the cost to be there. And with worship, we incur a cost. And I, that's um, my, last, my last point here. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, King David has, against the orders of God, they're about to go into battle with some really big army that they're not sure they're going to make it over, even though they've made it over lots of ones before that. He's still not totally confident about God's faithfulness. So he goes, you know what? We need to count the soldiers. Take a census of all the soldiers. And his lead commander says, I don't think you should do that. Just believe in God's faithfulness. And he's like, no, 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 no. It'll be fine. Take a census of the soldiers. I want to know how many men we have before we go into battle with this other group of men to know, are we going to be able to take them? So he's trusting in the power of his army instead of the power of God. And when the census is completed, a plague breaks out and 70,000 people of Israel die. Um, And they actually said it was like a map. The the angel of God started at one point and he was just sweeping through the land. And 70,000 people are dying along the way. And at some point, the Lord says, that's enough. And he pulls the angel back. And the angel stops at the threshing floor of a man named Arona. David happened to be there, and he saw the angel of the Lord, and he repented. And then he went, um, then a prophet named Gad came to him and said, David, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arona looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arona said, why has my Lord come to the king, his servant? He's bowing down in his face. To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Well, this is the king. So Arona says, oh, let my Lord the king take whatever he pleases and offer it. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. I have threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Arona gives all this to the king. 
And Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Um, The worship leader, Darlene Check, she was the uh, worship leader of Hillsong Australia. And when she first started at that church, she was very prideful. She tells the story in her book called Extravagant Worship. And um, they banned her from singing solos, even though she was already a professional singer since she was like six or eight years old because of her pride. (laughs) And uh, she had a hard time with that. And then somebody told her, Told, she overheard someone telling somebody else, you know, she'll never amount to anything in worship. Well, she became one of the most powerful worship leaders of our generation. And during a sonogram with her uh, third daughter, the doctor found something concerning and sent her to the hospital. Um, with the information she had so far, they had been told that when she arrived at the hospital, they were just going to have to do a DNC and remove the baby that there was something really severely wrong and it could cause her death or the baby's death or both. And on the car on the way to the hospital, she was in total despair, just weeping at losing this child that she was already pretty far along pregnant with. And she, when she tells, I heard her tell this story and she said, she heard the Lord say to her, sing. And she's like, no. And she hears again, Sing. I'm about to go with this child. And she hears sing again a last time. And all she could muster was amazing grace. That cost. When we choose to worship God from a place of despair, it really costs us something. And it touches his heart deeply. And Darlene lost that baby. She did have another third child eventually after that, but there's no miracle story about how her worshiping God saved the life of her baby. But it cost her something to bring that worship to God. And that's the type of worship that God desires, and I guarantee you that place of tender worship she was in helped sustain her through that process. God is desperate for your individual, unique worship. He is worthy of our worship. He is awesome. His word is reliable and true. He equals holy. He equals love. He is desperate for your worship. Even if your salvation was the only good thing in your life and the rest of your existence from beginning to end was living hell, he would still be worthy of your worship. So what's the obstacle for you? What's the problem that you have with God? What's the problem that you have with worship? What's in the way? Shame, suffering, apathy, fear of looking stupid, sin, time to ask a different question. What will worship cost you? Because I hope that we're ready to make that choice of that obstacle becoming a price to pay for intimacy with God. I heard an amazing speaker talk about the WWJD bracelets that were really popular a couple weeks ago, or years ago, and he said, those frustrate him, first of all, because most people have no idea what Jesus did or how he would handle situations or else we would do a better job of being more like him. <clears throat> and second of all, it just misses the point. And he said if he could make a bracelet, he would put one word on it and it would be die. Because that's what we're called to do every day is die to ourselves and live, through, live in the life of Christ. So what will worship cost you? It's time to die. And there's a promise that comes with that. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he will become a new creation. The old has died, the new has come. And our destiny, Revelation 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. 
and the new has come. So, it's time to die. And what is worship going to cost you? Um, It's cost me time. It's cost me being embarrassed because I failed in front of the whole body of people. Um, The band fell apart in private. It's cost me um, sleep. It's cost me energy. And it's cost me letting go of some things in my life that I was really attached to, that the Lord said it was time to let go. And it cost me working on some of these obstacles that I had in my mind or in my spirit. So I'd like to invite you, if you know what it is that's going to cost you, and you're ready to die, to stand. And if you don't know what it is, but you still want to die, and you would like the Lord to reveal to you what those obstacles are, then I'd like you to stand. And if you just extend your hands, and I'll pray, and then we'll pray for each other. (laughs) Lord, we're here to die. We know that we have already done it spiritually when we asked you to become our Lord and Savior, but we want to choose to do it again today, to lay down the obstacles, the hindrances, the, the questions that we have, and to say, I'm going to work on those because it's time for those things in my life to die so that I can experience greater intimacy with you. I can learn how to worship you. I can live this life in a powerful way instead of living under the thumb of it. And Lord, I ask um, for each of those in this room to bring to you their sacrifice. And that you would exchange, make an exchange with them of their sacrifice for your heart of worship. In your name we pray. Bench, would you put on some music? And then any of you who are, are sitting, would you just get up and, and walk around a little bit and just minister to anybody who's, who's still standing? <clears throat> and um, if you need worship for something, I'm sorry. If you need prayer for something unrelated, you can also come up here to the front. Let me just do that. If, if you are still in a place where you would like some additional prayer, then just come up here to the front, and then we'll pray for you because it's kind of a... The ratio is not working out real well. (laughs) So thank you, and we'll see you next week.